Hi, Steve here. I want to tell you about the first time I went to work in Australia. I was so excited. The place was magical to me, and frankly, it was kind of a high point in my career. I mean, there I was in the land of koalas and platypuses and wombats, the world's largest earthworms. Go look it up. They can be up to 10 feet long. And, of course, those nice dangerous things like box jellies, taipan snakes, funnel-web spiders, the blue ring octopus, the saltwater crocodile, and, of course, the great white shark. I was told that Australia is home to the deadliest animals on Earth, and they were, of course, correct. Now, clearly, those people have not driven in Massachusetts, but I digress. But it was also the home of the Sydney Opera House, Cloudy Cooper's Beer, and, of course, the coolest people ever, Australians. You know, in an earlier episode, I talked about collective nouns, you know, words that describe a bunch of things, like a hover of trout, or a crash of rhinoceros, or a charm of finches. In this episode, I'm going to switch gears a little bit, and I'm going to talk about animal names, either old names or slang. Let's get into it. In 1626, Henry Cockerham published An Interpreter of Hard English Words. Don't you love that name? The book had an entry for something called a candle fly, which is a fly that hovers around a candle and often gets burned in the process. It was a moth. Now, since the 15th and 16th centuries, a number of water birds have been nicknamed arsefoot, arse as in the English word for ass, because their legs are positioned so far back on their bodies. Apparently, it was first used for the crested grebe, but it was later applied to ducks, loons, a few waders, and even penguins. A Roman poem about fishing that was written in the second century talks about the monstrous balance fish of hideous shape. It isn't clear from the context what kind of fish the author is referring to, but well into the 19th century, this was the name used to refer to hammerhead sharks. Okay, this is one of my favorites. Between the 13th and 15th centuries, during the Middle Ages, elephants were called carry castles because of their ability to carry huge loads. During the time of Hannibal and no doubt others, elephants were war machines, the equivalent of a modern-day tank. So you can see how the name would come about. Actually, though, they had another name years before that, as in 1,500 years before that. In 280 BCE, the Greek king Pyrrhus invaded Roman Lucania with 30,000 foot soldiers. But he also brought 20 war elephants that he had borrowed from Ptolemy II of Egypt, which were covered in armor and carried groups of archers on their backs. When the local Roman soldiers saw these gigantic things, bigger than anything they had ever seen before, and spewing arrows, they ran, allowing for a Greek victory. The Romans called them Lucanian oxen, long before they were carry castles. Now, in modern English, we have words that are called superlatives. These are words that make other words seem grander, like awesome. Now, not long ago, people also said, you know, what a doozy of a story, or that's a real humdinger. Well, at the end of the 19th century, there was a term called a bobby dazzler, which referred to a butterfly, probably because they were beautiful. What's interesting about this is that during the same time, the word bobby meant a plant that was completely covered with insects. I'm not sure what this has to do with calling a police officer in the UK a bobby, though. All right, now how do you feel about bumblebees? Because they weren't always called that, you see. In Old English, the word for an insect that buzzes around uncontrollably, as bumblebees are prone to do, they do bumble around after all, they're not exactly ballistic. Well, that word for insects that behave that way is, is door, and the 18th century word for a bumblebee, I bet you can guess, 
It was a Dumbledore. Yep, not invented by J.K. Rowling. All right, let's turn our attention now to Fruit Loops, or to their spokesbird. You know the rainbow-billed toucan? Well, they used to be called egg suckers, because for some weird reason it was thought that they ate the eggs from other birds' nests. Mostly they eat fruit, but like a lot of species, they're pretty opportunistic, and they'll eat eggs, insects, lizards, even little mammals. And now we go on to the 17th century fox ape. Somebody caught one and had it transported to England, where it had never been seen before. It was delivered to the Royal Society in London. Now, clearly those describing it had never seen either a fox or an ape, because it doesn't resemble either one. They wrote that the creature had a remarkable pouch in the belly, into which, upon any occasion of danger, it can receive its young. It's a possum, of course, a word that means white dog in the Algonquin language. Okay, next on the list... The Essence Peddler. You can probably guess what this is. If you said skunk, you're right. Actually, an Essence Peddler was exactly what the term implies, a 19th century seller of perfumes. But in 1860, Knickerbocker Magazine in New York had this to say, It is a vulgar mistake that the porcupine has the faculty of darting his quills to a distance, as the Essence Peddler has of scattering his aromatic wares. Gotta love it. Now, years ago, the poet Ogden Nash wrote these words, A funny bird is the pelican, his beak holds more than his belly can. Well, pelicans used to be called onocrotalus. In fact, the scientific name for the white pelican is Pelicanus onocrotalus. But here's where the name comes from. Onos is the ancient Greek word for a donkey or an ass. Crotalus is another name for the clapper in a bell or for a castanet. So, onocrotalus literally means ass-clapper, probably because the long beak of the pelican looks like the long face of a donkey, and they sometimes clap their beaks together like a castanet. And then, of course, we have the hachi-witchi, which is an old Roma name for a hedgehog. And, of course, the monkey bear, which 18th century Australian settlers gave to koalas since they looked kind of like bears, but they climbed trees. You know, many years ago, My wife and I caught her little brother, who was maybe four years old at the time, licking his finger, tapping it on the ground, and then licking off whatever he was picking up. We asked him what it was, and he said, ants, they taste like pepper. Well, they taste like pepper because they give off formic acid. But in quantity, formic acid smells vaguely like urine. So starting in the early 1500s, ants came to be known as pissmeyers, a name that is still sometimes used today. Next, we have the famous sparrow camel. The name comes from an old Greek word, strathocamelus, which amazingly means sparrow camel. It's what they called an ostrich. In fact, a late 19th century nature guide said that the sparrow camel hardly deserves to be called a bird, and it is certainly not a beast. Okay, it's a sparrow camel. Raccoons were sometimes called wash bears because of their habit of washing everything before eating it. They're also sometimes called trash pandas because of their vague resemblance to panda bears and the fact that they love to raid trash cans. As these scratches and claw marks on our trash containers outside, at least the ones that aren't from black bears, demonstrate. And then we have the fun ones, and in some cases, the new ones. The American woodcock, which gets my vote for the coolest bird in the world when it's doing its mating strut. If you're not familiar with it, please go to YouTube and just type in woodcock strutting, and just watch the first video that comes up. Well, the American woodcock is sometimes called a timber doodle. 
And a whistle pig, which many know as a wonderful spirit made right here in Vermont, is an old name for a woodchuck. And gulls are sometimes called beach chickens. And then we have those new ones I was referring to, which are unofficial, but still funny. Manatees have been dubbed floaty potatoes. A rattlesnake is a nope rope. And kangaroos, because of their massive and nasty rear claws that can do serious damage if you make them angry, are often called (laughs) velocirabbits, who said biology isn't fun. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode.